today's guest you already know because you can read is Billy Collins, the U.S. Poet Laureate. I believe for two years in a row. I don't know if they if it exists for two years or how it works. We're going to get to the bottom of that. But Billy is also a huge golfer. He and I met, uh, Billy Collins, he and I met uh, at Winter Park, which is a wonderful little nine-hole course in um, right outside of Orlando. And, well, I'll tell you the story. Let's get him on the phone here. There we go. I feel like we're doing a prank on a radio show. Hello? Is this Billy Collins? It is Billy Collins. <laughs> Good morning. Hey, it's Eric. How are you? How are you doing? You at LA now? I'm in Los Angeles. You wouldn't know it because I'm. It's like a. It's like a cloudy rainforest right now. Yeah, well, I'm in sunny Florida. Sunny and beautiful. It's like we've traded places. Oh, well, it's uh, azalea time. Oddly enough, in February or March now. Is that early? I well, I think so. I'm from New York, so it's it's like three months, or four months early, but. Are you, speaking of Not azaleas, sure. are you a big uh, golf on TV fan, for example, the Masters? Um, yeah, I, well, I went to the Masters once. That was um, two, two or three years ago. Um, and I just went on, um, <clears throat> let's see, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I went home and watched the rest on television because it's, it's such a game for television. Yeah, George Plimpton said that... Um, uh, golf is the only sport in which the crowd moves. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's... Whereas, um, you know, the crowd doesn't move in hockey or basketball. Um, so I've been to I went to the Masters once, and I think that was enough. I, um, it's good to be up close to the players, and uh, I mean, I was just standing right behind Ernie Els, and I could uh, actually hear that's his that famously smooth swing of his. And um, there are some other cheap golf thrills like that, but um, it's 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 a uh, it's a game for television. I think. Were you at all like? Because I I know a lot of people when they first go to Augusta, the it it finally clicks. You know, like they see the space and they understand the the roar of the crowds. Did did you have any like aha moments like that? Um, <clears throat> well, the aha moments really came when I, when I played Augusta. Um, and, uh, you know, when you play Augusta, or when I play Augusta, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's nobody there, basically. And so the fairways are, are really wide, you know, and the, cra- the kind of crowd um, up and down each side of the fairway uh, makes it look very narrow. I think it's an optical illusion, but the one thing about Augusta is that it's, um, the fairways are very generous. How, how, um, I mean, I guess, yeah, how did you play Augusta? Like, what, you know? Well, uh, just through, just through a friend of mine, um, uh, who's a member, that's all. I, I played there twice. Um, each time we played, we were there for three days. We played 18, 27, 18, which is, I think, I don't know what that adds up to, but, um, I think I played, uh, like a hundred holes there. Wow. And, uh, I did, I did birdie number 12, the little, Ooh. Uh, Azalea Hole. I think that's the one where uh, Spieth had a 12 or something. Yeah, Spieth would definitely have traded you on that hole for your score. <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot of fun to um, to watch the Masters uh, after that because you know I could see Rory getting a three on 12, and I was you know I'd say hey, good par there. You know uh, <laughs> that's that's what we're looking for pars. <laughs> so you know I mean we talked right. to. In our in our lead, you know, after we met, which we should tell the story of eventually, but I just wanted to jump into like, you know, real quick because we talked a little bit about how a lot of people compare a golf swing to poetry. But maybe before we do that, I think one of the most interesting and poetic things about golf is that you know any hacker can hit a shot that a pro would take any day. That is almost poetic. Do you see that as maybe we should define poetic first? Well, I, I think I think those usage, usages of the word poetic or poetry are. Uh, I mean, they're they're a way of enhancing um, <clears throat> what you're looking at. So, if you say Ernie Els's swing is poetry in motion, um, you never say prose in motion, right? <laughs> um, 
So I, I think poetry is poetry. You know, it, it, it's written on a page and it's a poem. And I think all of the comparisons um, to uh, ice skating, you know, she's poetry in motion, or that that's, uh, skateboarder has some poetry in his soul. I, I think it's all. It's just a way of, of uh, flattering uh, someone. But I don't think it has anything to do with what I consider poetry to be, which is something that I read and write. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I guess maybe for those, uh, you know, laymans who don't understand poetry or aren't able to produce it, I guess maybe the feeling that poetry creates when you read it, something, some type of feeling of, um, well, I guess, what is that? Like when, when you, when you know it's a good poem, how do you know it's a good poem? I mean, most of the people who say would say, like an ice skater is uh, figure skating is poetry in motion. Uh, pro- I mean, don't read poetry, and they're just—it's just used as an enhancer. I, I don't think it has anything to do with the the written um, the written documents that we call poems. But that's you know that's fair enough. But it just it irritates me. But a lot of things <laughs> irritate me. So what, what irritates you the most? Huh? <laughs> what irritates you the most? Oh, um, I, I guess poems that are a poem of mine that is taken, reproduced, and centered. You know, you can just hit center, and the poem is centered. It looks kind of like a Christmas tree. It looks organized. Interesting. <laughs> that That's highly annoying. You hate a center-justified uh, lines. Justified middle, yeah. The poem's supposed to be justified left. <laughs> it's supposed to look like a, like a ragged flag. So oh. that the left edge is is razor straight and right edges kind of uneven. Fascinating. I never would have guessed that that would be what would annoy you. <laughs> well, that's why you, that's why you called me <laughs> to get to the bottom of things like that. Um, yeah. so, so you, Billy, we, we met on, can you tell me the story of how we met? Because I know it and I feel like I can tell it, but I wonder what it's like from your perspective. Well, um, I'll, we, we met on a, on a beautiful little nine-hole course, um, which is not um, not an easy course. It's got two par fives, so it's got some muscle um, back-to-back, actually. But we met on this little nine-hole course, and uh, uh, you said hello to me, and you know, uh, like a regular guy, and then you found out that I was the poet, and you... You were surprised. That's the way I would tell it. <laughs> you can curse on the podcast if you want. <laughs> yeah. What would you add? Would you add to that anything? Well, yeah. I mean, we were we were talking, and I noticed I noticed you, and we shook hands, and um, and then there was a, a friend of mine next to you, Christian uh, Hafer, was was standing next right. to me, and he'd introduced us, and he said, "So he said, so where do you want to do the portrait?" And then I was like, "Yeah, he was doing my picture." Yeah, and I was like, "Why is Christian doing a portrait of this guy with this?" Uh, with this... <laughs> <laughs> Why is this guy having his portrait? <laughs> yeah, with his hair. And then, and then I think he called you Billy. And then I think I had like a weird shot where I was like, "Wait a minute, is this?" And then yeah, he said, "You're the you're the poet laureate." And I was like, "You're Billy Collins." And you were like, "Yeah." And I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> like, That's right. <laughs> because I, because for years I'm not a much of a, um, I, I guess I'm a student of poetry in the same sense that I dropped out of high school. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by a lot of things, and I've and I've I own three of your books, and so to randomly kind of be in front of you was, it was just almost jarring, you know. Well, um, that's by the way, that's a good way to preserve your love of poetry is to drop out of school um, <laughs> early. <laughs> Why is that? Why do but, we disrespect yeah, that's it? We, that's how we met. It's a, it's an, uh, I love that it was a, uh, everyone, all you people were down for the PGA uh, convention, right? And I think somebody heard of this little beauty, this little nine-hole course, and uh, how many guys were there, 30 or 40, who played a shotgun match? Um, it was a great afternoon, and then everybody afterward was talking about, we want a, we want a nine-hole course like this in our backyard. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this one was started in 1914 when uh, land, land in Florida was pretty cheap, so you could easily throw in a golf course in the middle of town. 
So let, let's, do you mind if I just spend the next 40 minutes just trying to draw comparisons between golf and poetry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I don't think that, I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of people try to, um, I've written poems about jazz because it's one of my interests as, you know, but so is the weather and I've written about that. <laughs> but a lot of people compare jazz and poetry and this, I think there's just an overlapping because the audience for jazz and the audience for poetry over those Venn diagrams overlap a little bit. But I think, again, the, uh, the comparison is, um, is specious and without merit because, uh, I mean, the, the, the quick way to say it is there's no eraser on a saxophone. You know, jazz is on-the-spot composition. In other words, improvisation. But writing is not improvisation. You might try to make your writing sound as improvised and spontaneous as possible. That usually requires work and involves um, the other end of the pencil where you find the eraser. But there's no going back when you're up there soloing uh, with a trumpet or a saxophone or whatever. So, um, yeah, so I think those comparisons are... I don't like comparing poetry to anything. I think it's it's, it's totally itself. But I can respect that. That's because that's I, that's I, I mean, that's my practice. become a poet he was asked and he said well I, I I began with by fooling around with words and at some point it became my life and <laughs> um, you know so he and and um, who was it um, uh, Updike John Updike said about being a writer he said uh, it felt like being swallowed by a hobby <laughs> so both of those both of those guys begin by uh, thinking of writing as a hobby or fooling around with words, in other words, uh, taking it quite casually. And then uh, if you stay with it, um, the writing can gradually kind of move into the center of the picture. And then, yeah, it, writing is your life. I mean, it's certainly a big part of it. It's interesting. You know, I, I have many thoughts. I think the the first one is, fooling around with something and then it becoming your life. I mean, for me, that's golf. Uh, I, I kind of was fooling around with it and now I'm not a pro golfer, but you know, I've been told that my life is golf and I'm, and I, and I, and I live it. And, but then also the, um, the other interesting thing was when you talk about jazz and poetry and then I'm comparing everything to golf right now, you know, like what's interesting about jazz and poetry that golf doesn't have, or it, or it should, but doesn't, is that jazz and poetry are, like you said, they are really experienced in the moment, whereas a lot of times golf is experienced in so many, it's pulled in other directions, whether it's score or, um, you know, equipment or status. And I think that, I think that, you know, Winter Park, for example, does a great job of bringing it back to like, what is this experience that we're going to have in the moment, similar to going to a, to a jazz show? having that little uh, local the nine hole course um, it's a little I, I often keep a Sunday bag in the tr my trunk of my car and pretty much every day you can't you can't avoid driving near this golf course because it's right in the center of town almost and if the first few holes are open I'll just jump on there and play a quick nine but that's, for me it's it's um, it's a little like those little courses in Ireland and Scotland that are um, you know, anybody can play them. And, uh, you know, in Scotland, you'll see a kid walking down the street with a, you know, twirling a seven iron. Right. So, um, it, it, because the sport is so, so common and, uh, old, uh, elderly women play it and, uh, kids that aren't even teenagers play it. Um, and it opened, and this course in Winter Park opens it up to, uh, to families and anyone and people who want to learn the game. Which is really kind of what I really am attracted to about golf. You know, courses like uh, Augusta and, and things like that, I thought were what golf was. And I and when I first hit a golf shot, I didn't realize that I could play golf. Do you know do you know what I mean? Yeah. I thought it was so exclusive that I was just merely gonna be like in in the background in the in the going through the, uh, the employee entrance, you know? Um, but to go I back to, golf, go ahead. Sorry. I'll just say golf, golf was quite exclusive until, uh, 
I would say the um, 70s into the 80s, um, golf became uh, democratized uh, just the way tennis became democratized, I'd say, in the 60s and early 70s. I mean, tennis and golf were both uh, rather elite country club sports, uh, limited to a few people. And I think golf, with some people who don't play golf, still has that reputation. I mean, I don't think many writers... Um, uh, I mean, I'm surprised that I'm admitting to you that I play golf. Um, <laughs> Why is that? I, should, I really shouldn't be telling anybody about that because uh, of its associations, which are kind of uh, wealthy Republican men with uh, odd-looking clothes, um, dressing, uh, dressing in a way that they would never dress anywhere except on a golf course. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, like... Jimmy Connors and uh, John McEnroe, um, kind of the the, the brats of of, golf, of tennis, rather, um, made it into more of a democratic sport, open to a lot of people, and that, that happened to golf too. I think now people say, I'm not on top of this, but people say that golf has peaked. Maybe a few five years ago, the the um, there was kind of a craze and everyone's playing golf. And now uh, fewer people are playing, I think. Um, fewer people are buying equipment the way they used to. Um, people don't spend $500 every two years on the new driver. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it's just leveling out. See, I hear this a lot. You know, golf has peaked. It's in decline. Da, da, da. And, you know, the only people who are saying that are the people who stand to make a lot off of the people that play golf. And so, you know, like to me, I'm like, hey, I don't care if someone doesn't buy your club. You know, yeah, that's the, right. there was that's recently right. a, a, a thing that came out on the Internet that was a letter that uh, a man had written to his wife. It was actually a contract. And it said, I will not buy a new driver. I understand that buying a new driver is a waste of money and it only brings me away from my marriage. <laughs> and, you know, it was signed by, yeah. by him and his wife. And I think the whole golf equipment you know, uh, kerfuffle or boondoggle is just like, who cares? You know, like that's not golf. Yeah. Well, especially if you look in, you know, golf museums or whatever, uh, where you see, uh, the kind of uh, clubs that, uh, Ben Hogan or Bobby Jones were playing with. I mean, these, uh, no cavity back for, I mean, I don't think anyone referred to a forgiving club back then. <laughs> uh, every club was, every club was unforgiving unless you could really hit it well. <laughs> You know, and wooden wooden handles and all that. So uh, they certainly weren't out buying a uh, new set of clubs every couple of years. You know, the equi yeah, the equipment uh, makes golf. Of golf is extremely time consuming. I mean, you can go play tennis for half an hour, right, and get a nice workout and whatever. But you can't play golf for half an hour. You're in for you know, often for getting there and back four or five or six hours. Yeah, it's a enormous um, a time suck, if you will. Um, not to uh, denigrate the game, but and, and it's relatively expensive. Yeah, I mean, if you, you just need a, a can of balls and a racket. Um, but anyway, um, it's well, the thing I like about golf. <clears throat> excuse me, and I might have um, mentioned this when I when we first met, but um, I really like the the contrast between the two states of mind one is in when one's playing golf. One, you have companionship. You know, you're usually playing with your friends. And so, it's, so it's a, this, the game has a very social dimension. Um, and you're talking along and, and laughing and stuff like that. Uh, but then it's your turn to hit the ball. And everything changes. You are now alone. Nobody can help you. The, and the ball's not moving. Now, it's one of the few sports where you can just stare at the ball. <laughs> and you know, a hockey puck is always in motion. The ball's just staring back at you, basically, with all its dimples. Um, and then you hit the ball, and then you return to your friends. So you're, you know, you're going kind of in, back and forth from a social situation to a very um, uh, uh, a moment where, of true solitude, where you're everyone's quiet. There's that etiquette, and one of the few sports where the people you're playing against are actually quiet. Um, you know, if you're gambling, anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm almost speechless. I've never heard it quite described that well. 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I think it's a, uh, the friends I play with, um, we, I think we all think of it as an opportunity for conversation. I, there's a friend of mine down here who, uh, he's sort of an amateur theologian and I went to a Jesuit school. So, you know, the first time we played, we were talking about St. Augustine and Duns Scotus and these, uh, Pierre de Chardin and all these philosophers. <clears throat> and I think that's, um, you know, I, I hate playing where you're just talking about what you're doing, you know. It's like, so, uh, you know, one guy says to the other, uh, hey, Charlie, you hit that kind of thin. <laughs> well, yeah, we know that. I mean, look where the ball is, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but if you're just talking about, uh, you know, what club are you using or what's the distance, uh, it's just kind of grinding. There's so many, uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, to have a decent conversation. Yes. Yeah. So to go back to uh, what you were that you mentioned Ireland and Scotland and um, you know even before before I met you but after I was already very aware of your work I found myself in Scotland on an island in the Outer Hebrides called South Uist and I played a course called Askernish which is uh, the first episode of the second season of Adventures in Golf. Um, and, you know, while I was there having this remarkable discovery, I would say this episode is one of the truest uh, adventures that I've had in my experience of producing and, and hosting this show, which is, you know, on Sunday night, I'm in a Thai restaurant in Edinburgh and uh, expecting Monday morning to have a day off. And instead, I'm on a plane at 5 a.m. flying, you know, to this random little island that the airport is called Benbecula. And... Right. You know, I played this course and, and what was interesting is um, after playing it, I returned home and my father sent me, I mean, this is an old Tom Morris course that was lost to the world and reinvigorated by a uh, polite greenskeeper named Gordon Irving, Gordon Irvine, Gordon Irving. And anyway, it's this remarkable story, Atlantis. And I get home and my father sends me an email that says, um, you know, Billy Collins has also been there and he, uh, he sent me your poem, which is not quite easily findable. Um, but would you, would you mind sort of, you know, telling me a little bit about your experience with Askernish and, and, uh, if you have the poem readily available, would you, could you do a reading for me and the listeners? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, um, there were two, uh, I, I, uh, Susanna, my partner and I went to, uh, uh, ask her, uh, well, we're South U.S. rather, um, I think four or, so, or four or five summers ago, I was at the Edinburgh, um, uh, festival, which kind of goes all summer. And we decided, um, well, two things. My mother's family is from South U.S. Uh, their name is McIsaac, um, Scots Catholic. And they left there in the middle of the 19th century, uh, for Canada. And you can see why when you get to Askernish, um, I mean, when you get to South Uist. So there are two draws. One was, um, it was, my mother was born there, but her father was born there. And, and the other one was this amazing, uh, unearthed golf course designed by Tom Morris, which was written up in the New Yorker by David Owen. And if anyone wants to hear, it's called the Ghost Course. And if anyone wants to really get the story on it, if you go to the New Yorker magazine archives and look under David Owen and the title is The Ghost Course, it's an absolutely amazing story. So we got to South Uist, as you say, Eric, with some determination, um, <laughs> and because no one really goes there. Wait, by the way, can and I just interrupt you for one second, Billy? Yeah. You said your mom's father was born there? I mean, he must have been one of the native inhabitants. I mean, there's only uh, several hundred people on the island. Right. It's very, uh, there, well, I, I don't think the population was much more than that. <laughs> um, you know, there, the, there are a number of very nice houses. They're painted white, kind of stucco, and they, everything looks very neat. But if, if you had hired a surveyor and told them, we're going to put up 40 houses, and we like that. We'd like them to be as far from each other as possible. <laughs> can you fig, can you figure that out? There's no there's no cluster of houses, no. and there's no there's no community. There's no little street where you have like a barber shop or a grocery store or a post office. There's there's none of that. It's very not only 
isolated in that it's it's in the outer Hebrides, but the experience is basically sheep, rock, wind, and rain. I mean, and, and that's it. They have wind days there. It never snows there, but if the wind gets up to like 40 miles an hour, the little kids don't have to go to school because they're afraid they'll just get picked up and thrown into the sea. No. Um, really? Yeah, they have. They, they do have. They have wind days because um, they're, they're not loaded. Their backpacks aren't as big as the American backpacks. <laughs> they they um, They don't have those huge textbooks. So <laughs> they're not weighted sufficiently weighted to the earth. Um, but I, so I got in touch with David Owen, who wrote the article. He got me in touch with the uh, the guy who runs the place. Isn't it Ralph? Is his name? Uh, I, I can't remember. I don't think you, you didn't meet him, right? He wasn't no, there. No, I was him. there and nobody was there. Not only was the island uh, isolated, nobody was there. the golf course was closed. You, 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 yeah, you put your money in the little slot there. Yeah. The old-fashioned way. Well, when I went over, um, Ralph wrote me back, emailed me back and said, well, the weekend you're coming over is the weekend of the Ask Kranish Open. And I, my heart sank because I thought, you know, terrible timing. I won't be able to play. And he said, I've signed you up for the Open. You'll be playing in the Aspenish Open. <laughs> so uh, so when I got there, I actually played in the Open. And I did write this little poem. It's not, not, it's not like my other When you say it's not like it, what do you, in terms of how do you, why? It's, a, it's kind of a jaunty, rhyming poem. Okay. Um, that's, the, that's the difference, I think. Um, so it's called South Uist. There's a handful of reasons to come here. The salmon's as good as the drinks. Some like the whiskey, some like the beer, but I'm happiest when out on the links. It's fine to be a student of genealogy, busy tracing your family's course, but the only ghost I need for company is the ghost of old Tom Morris. The hikers come for the air and the sights, and the anglers are here for the fishing. But nothing is better under blue skies than when I'm askernishing. So that uh, is I'm turning. Um, I think that's the only golf course that's turned into a verb there. I don't know. <laughs> it fits well. You did good. When you when can you tell me about the moment when you wrote that? I always wonder about the moment of inspiration for someone like you. I don't know. I think I started writing it on the ferry when we left. Uh, we came and left by ferry. I started writing it in a notebook on the ferry and kind of polished it. And uh, we were heading home at that point. And by the time I got back to the States, uh, the poem was done and I emailed it off to uh, to the lads at Askernish. They so must have been become thrilled. Something, something, I mean, it's, it's kind of known as maybe the purest Lynx course in the world. Yeah. Because nothing has changed to main... I guess basically you'd say a lynx course is a course usually along the sea, along some water that uses the con natural contours of the land uh, <clears throat> to make the design of the golf course. So there's no earth moving. And there was certainly no move, earth moving in the original Asconish, and they didn't uh, bring in any uh, earth moving equipment in the rebuilding of Asconish, or the resurrection, you might say, of Asconish. Um, so that's why it's all totally natural. And when you stay, when you're out on the course, it's once you know your way around. I'm surprised you didn't, you could figure out what the next hole was because oh no, I got lost. Uh, it, it, it looks like you're just standing not not on a golf course. You're just standing in a kind of a rough landscape. And then oh my gosh, there's a fairway. We guess we can hit the ball down there. <laughs> Did you ever get lost when you were playing Askinish? Yeah, the um, I think it's I think the first <laughs> hole goes out, then the second hole continues, and then I think around the third or the fourth hole, there's a par three, and I was aiming at the completely incorrect green. Um, <laughs> I hit, right, right, right. It was sort of like a 200 yard <laughs> shot, and I hit a really good shot at this other flag. Maybe that would be the measure of what um, true uh, old golf is that if you can't find the next hole. If you're out there and you have no idea where the next hole is, you are playing pure links golf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should not only get lost inside your own head with your life on golf, but you should get lost yeah, also yeah. physically. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it was a pretty, uh, pretty marvelous experience. 
Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. So, you know, when you were playing Askernish, did you have an experience that was... You know, did did you have like an enlightening golf moment beyond the, you know, the normal? Well, I might have. Uh, I, I'd have a better chance at having such an experience had I been out there uh, as you were out there uh, with just another friend and nobody else. I mean, the the open was uh, there were a lot of golfers there, mostly locals uh, or people from other uh, uh, islands in Scotland. Uh, they weren't being helicoptered in or anything. Um, but I was playing uh, with a threesome, and uh, so there was a lot of talk. And it, I didn't, you know, you could see the the wildness of the uh, of the course itself, uh, but uh, the pure links nature of the course. But um, I didn't have one of these kind of uh, you know epiphanies. Um, there was a around I think it's where the seventh hole meets maybe the thirteenth or fourteenth hole. There was a flatbed truck there with two guys, and they had these lovely like salmon, little salmon sandwiches, mm. and and a few bottles of whiskey. So you would have a, a little couple of salmon sandwiches, shot of uh, uh, scotch, and then uh, off you go. And uh, so and the clubhouse is just a little uh, shack in a way yeah. compared to. You know, Stanford White golf place at Shinnecock. I I have to tell you the story since you mentioned shacks and salmon. Um, So we filmed all day and, you know, we were there in May and the sun didn't set until 11 or so. And we we didn't have a place to stay, but we had somehow found this bed and breakfast that was, you know, not an Airbnb. It was just literally a guy renting out his house. And we were we were a crew of many, eight or nine. And. And the guy somehow said yes. And, um, you know, but by the time we got back to the house, there were no restaurants open. I mean, the restaurant was closed. And right. we, had, we had bought some salmon earlier in the day because on the way down, there's this great little uh, locks place. And we had bought some wine. And it, the problem was is that when we got back to the house, all of that stuff was locked up in the kitchen that the host of the house had, had closed. So we, we tried to get into the kitchen and we, we couldn't, so we didn't want to break in and be rude Americans. So we thought, okay, well, we'll just open the wine and then we couldn't find a wine opener. So we, so someone found out that, you know how you open a bottle of wine without a wine opener. Have you ever heard this? No, you put the, you put the wine in a boot, like the bottom of the wine bottle goes in a boot and then you bang that boot against the wall for about five minutes, very vigorously and the cork pops out. Now, Did it work? It, it worked, but the, the most houses on the island of South Uist are very sturdy, right, because of the wind. And yeah. even still, this stone house was being banged by a, a bottle of wine. And now it's about midnight, and the owner of the house woke up. <laughs> and yeah. he was totally shocked at why, why someone was banging on the exterior of his house. And then we were, he did actually, uh, as upset as he was, he did open up the kitchen and we got the salmon and the, and the opener at that point. But yeah, yeah. I think that's the, that's a culture that still, uh, goes to bed when it's, when it gets dark and wakes up when the sun comes up. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that diurnal, um, routine that, people had before uh before clocks they say that uh the joke is what do you call a, a sheep tied to a pole in south uist uh, i don't know the entertainment center yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> well there's, yeah there's uh i can see why in uh 1854 i think um my mother's uh father and others uh, jumped onto a boat uh, heading to Canada, which was a pretty risky thing to do back then, but uh, uh, there's really very little to do. I, I mean, if my, you know, if, if uh, those people had not left the island, uh, uh, I wouldn't, I would be a very different person. If I just stayed there, I'd be like a bachelor shepherd or something. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, def- definitely uh, yeah, living alone there. 
uh, looking at the one sheep on the pole. <laughs> maybe, maybe you and old Tom would have collaborated on, uh, on the, uh, yeah, on, it's, on the... Uh, it, it's gorgeous though. I mean, the outer Hebrides, um, it's like the end of the world, you know, cause there's nothing out there, but the, uh, the, the, the expanse of the Atlantic. And so you're getting the, the weather right off the Atlantic. There's nothing standing between you and, and those storms. So it's a, it's a pretty, it's a very wild place. Yeah. My, a, a few years later, my father and I had the, the luck of going to Northern Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but the Northern part of Ireland. And there was, um, we were on our way to play um, uh, County Mayo and a few others. And we stopped off at, I won't remember the name. It's like Black Mud or Black something. Black Sod is where it is. Yeah. And it was, the, it was like the sun had set and mom was tired. So me and dad just dro- got in the car and drove out to Black Sod where they had this lighthouse. And my dad loves lighthouses along with golf. And we got to see this this lighthouse that played an important role in D-Day where they were the first people to report the weather uh, on that particular day. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'll be back there in, um, this summer. We're going to play Valley Bunyan and La Hinch, uh for two days. Anyway, maybe three days. Great. I'd love to join. When? Tell me when. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm playing with the, uh, my friend who belongs to Augusta, so... Uh, um, I wouldn't fit in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, let's switch gears. I, I, I do. I, I, um, I guess, you know, what do you consider to be the meaning of life? The meaning of life? Yeah. Did you, did you actually say that? <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm just full of quotations. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Wow. And I would put, I, I think that's a very succinct way to think about it, to be, um, you know, aware that uh, this is this is a terminal, you know, this is going to end. And I think one of the themes in poetry is uh, maybe the most ancient theme that still continues is the theme of carpe diem, you know, seize the day because you're, you don't have an infinite number of diems given to you. And... Um, I think focusing on mortality is not a morbid uh, uh, preoccupation. I think it's the more you're aware of life's uh, temporary quality, it's a way of kind of, I'd say, italicizing your experience. Everything is uh, maybe more vivid when you take into account the fact that you're not going to be looking at that palm tree that palm tree's going to be here after after you're gone. So much is going to be here after you're gone. It's hard to imagine that um, people will be bicycling along and playing golf and and without you. But somehow the world will get along. So I think that's the meaning of life. The meaning of life is that it ends. And do you ever have moments where you have forgotten that and then you remind yourself or, or something? Oh, yeah. Oh, you can't you can't keep that in mind. Uh, I, I think unless you're, you know, a, a Buddhist monk or something, uh, you know, we we off, we just get tied up in our daily uh, routines and our uh, our little uh, self advancement uh, schemes and uh, all the, the fulfilling the demands of the ego. But I think in writing poems about that, um, that's one reminder. Um, that uh, if, you know, most poems either tend to be about love or about death. And uh, so many in the act of writing a poem, often I become aware that the poem is kind of the shadow of mortality is kind of crossing the page. And this poem wants to be about something less trivial than what it started with. And in fact, it's going to be about death. So, um, so writing poetry is a or reading poetry is a great reminder of that. I think one of one of poetry's functions is to remind people of the uh, the transience of life and therefore the specialness of daily experience. How's that? I, I mean, again, I, I I do a lot of interviews, Billy, and I just 
I don't really get speechless in this way or just, or just overwhelmed. Like I just would like to take five minutes and not talk, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I I think maybe the only thing I can come up with is, would you read the weighing the dog for everybody? Okay. Yeah. This is a poem. that's a really old poem, but for me, but, um, we're, we're always just, we're always looking for analogies or, you know, uh, taking an experience and then comparing it to something else. So that's a, that's what I'm doing here. So it's called weighing the dog. It is awkward for me and bewildering for him. as I hold him in my arms in the small bathroom, balancing our weight on the shaky blue scale. But this is the way to weigh a dog and easier than training him to sit obediently on one spot with his tongue out waiting for the cookie. With pencil and paper, I subtract my weight from our total to find out the remainder that is his. And I start to wonder if there is an analogy here. It could not have to do with my leaving you, though I never figured out what you amounted to until I subtracted myself from our combination. You held me in your arms more than I held you through all those awkward and bewildering months. And now we are both lost in strange and distant neighborhoods. So that's a good one. You end up with two lost, two lost dogs there. One lost dog is bad enough. (laughs) I have a two lost dog. (laughs) Um, Oh jeez, I need a break. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if that hit anybody else like it hit me, but I'm going through something right now. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll bet you are. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like I'll, that's. Go ahead. One thing I wanted to uh, mention, just I was thinking about golf, is uh, this poem that I think I told you about that I wrote for Golf Magazine. Yeah. Um, I was actually commissioned. It was the, uh, <clears throat> um, the something, I think the 30th or 40th anniversary of the May. And they commissioned uh, me to write a poem about golf. And, um, and I, I did write one and it was published there. And, but one little thing, uh, I'll, I'd love to read it, but one Please. thing before that is that um, I do have an agent and he was um, talking to the magazine about what they were going to pay me. And of course they they were trying to get less and he was trying to get more. And finally he said, okay, we'll accept that offer, that uh, number, but you have to throw in two Scotty Cameron putters. <laughs> so, and they, and, and they did. So I think this is the only poem written, um, uh, and, uh, with the result of being paid in a by putter. <laughs> and, um, do you want me to read it? Yeah, please, Do you please. Have time? Yeah. It's called Night Golf, Night Golf. I remember the night I discovered, lying in bed in the dark, that a few imagined holes of golf work much better than a thousand sheep, that the local links, not the cloudy pasture with its easy fence, was the greener path to sleep. How soothing to stroll the shadowy fairways, to skirt the moon-blanched bunkers, and hear the night owl in the woods. Who cared about the score when the club swung with the ease of air and I glided from shot to shot over the moan and rolling ground, alone and drowsy with my weightless bag? Eighteen small cups punched into the bristling glass, eighteen flags limp on their sticks in the silent windless dark. But in the bedroom with its luminous clock, and propped open windows, I got only as far as the seventh hole before I drifted easily away. The difficult seventh, the tester, they called it, where, just as on the earlier holes, I tapped in dreamily for birdie. <laughs> so so, good. If you're, uh, so that, I just thought playing, play, playing an imaginary round of golf at the course you know really well. Um, is a good way to get to sleep. And, uh, of course, your score is really going to improve <laughs> <laughs> as you hit one perfect shot, shot after another. You know, I think 
one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, is um, poetry is so, like you said, I mean, it's basically death or love. Can we talk a little bit about love and can you kind of tell me what, what, what it's taught you? Well, um, <clears throat> that's a, um, I think you want me to give you some uh, advice to the love one here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, well, it's, yeah, it's one of the great subjects. And again, it's got uh, probably the longest tradition of, of that, uh, poetry, uh, as a, uh, you know, starting out, not starting out with Shakespeare, it's earlier than that, but the, the, the sonnet, the Petrarchan sonnet, uh, around, uh, the 14th century and then, um, moving into England a little later on, the sonnet was, um, all about the lack of love. I mean, the sonnet was about the mournful uh, lover who is, or the the, uh, the obsessed lover and uh, unre- uh, suffering from unrequited love. And um, I mean, there, now there are, there are lots of other variations, but I just think it's, uh, for me, it's a way to put someone in the poem other than myself. Uh, I don't write about other people very much. I think if I was interested in other people, I would write fiction. Uh, but I'm um, I'm an only child, and so that was a perfect preparation for a life of writing about yourself, uh, basically. But right. I mean, if, I mean, ever since Wordsworth, the subject of the poem is the poet, the I, the, ex- the personal experience of the poet. I wandered lonely as a cloud. I wandered lonely as a cloud. Um, so if you have if you have someone else in there to keep you company, uh, uh, a, a woman, um, then that's you're, you're dealing with. You know, poetry is really the history of human emotion, and uh, we have other histories that write about uh, treaties and wars and and uh, land grabs and inventions and all that. But poetry is the only record we have uh, of hum- of the human heart. And uh, so when writing a love poem, you're also joining this huge group of other poets and other people who have who have uh, suffered the same way, suffered the, the, the pains of love and also uh, the joys of love. So um, it's a, it's I guess I'm just saying it's a time honored subject and one of the magnetic poles that uh, a lot of poems are pulled into. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, you, you know, you talk about, I guess, poems are about loneliness and to some extent, you know, I apologize, but so is golf to some extent. I mean, you know, you, you, uh, no one really cares how you played, right? I mean, that's, that's really a thing that we do <laughs> just to ourselves. Well, uh, well, if you're not only that, I mean, it's the situation is worse than that because if you're gambling, uh, you know, you, you've got three guys who want you to fail. Um, <laughs> I mean, they won't say that. They're still your buddies. But, uh, you know, if someone said every golf sh- shot makes somebody happy, maybe <laughs> not the person who hit the ball, but <laughs> there's, there's, there's another $10 lost to your friend or whatever. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're alone. Uh, intens- that intensifies the aloneness. If uh, you have three people who are um, hoping you hit a worm burner. <laughs> what do you... Um... What do you make of coincidences? Pardon me, Eric? What do you make of coincidence? What do I... I'm sorry, I still didn't understand it. <clears throat> like, like, you know, um, a lot of people come up with elaborate explanations for experiencing a coincidence. Do you have some type of oh. belief? Oh, I see, I see. Um, well, I guess so much of life is not a coincidence that um, a coincidence stands out against the background of, you know, going through days, weeks, and months without a coincidence, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have... Uh, it, it, the fact that coincidences are, are rare makes them uh, notable or remarkable. But, uh, yeah, I... Uh, well, it was just a... Uh, I guess this is dramatic irony, but there was a, a forest fire or an earthquake somewhere as Turkey or somewhere oh, just a few weeks ago. No one was hurt. No one was killed. It was minor. 
but a helicopter went out to uh, survey the property and crashed and killed six or seven people. So that's a coincidence. I guess that's just irony that mm. if you go out to uh, examine uh, a disaster and then you become another disaster. No, I, never mind. It's not a good example. So I no, say. I mean, it's, it, but, it's, uh, it's very ironic, yeah. What well, I, I'd say meeting meeting you was not a, a meeting you was kind of a coincidence in that you'd played uh, how many people have played Askernish? How many people? How many Americans have been to South U.S.? I mean, it's very few. It's I most people haven't even heard of it, Billy. Yeah, and and, uh, and we shouldn't really tell them about it. But, uh, <laughs> no one's going. I promise. Well, it's so it, we should say it's really hard to get to. Extremely <laughs> hard to get to. Yeah. It's usually raining. Yeah. Uh, the wind is ferocious. So unless you're really, I'd say a five handicapper under, you should, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get out there. No, it's not for right, you. Eric, wouldn't you agree? I yeah. would totally, it's a very, it's like Beth Page Black. It's very hard. I yeah. Mean, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, and it doesn't have a sign like Beth Page Black, but they would put up a sign saying, you know, get out of here if you can't play well, golf well. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> It's just not, I mean, there's some history to it, of course, with old Tom Morris, but you're not going to think about that when you're like pelting rain on your face and you're <laughs> lying seven in a, in, a pot, in a pot bunker or whatever they call it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, We've, we, need it, to, we need to bad mouth South U.S. A, a lot of people ask, you know, oh, what, uh, what adventure, you know, because we've done 20 episodes now. And a lot of people say, oh, what adventure in golf would you recommend I do or, or people do? And I'm like, none of them. They're all really complicated and, and annoying. And, yeah. you know, but like, but that's what I've learned recently is called type two fun. Have you ever heard of this? No, type two what? Type two fun, F-U-N. Okay. So, so apparently type two fun is the type of fun where it's only fun afterwards. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like hiking. Well, it's also uh, the fun of anticipation. Yeah. All right, there's that, and then the fun afterwards, uh, like because it you turn it into a story, yeah, which is maybe more interest. The story is more interesting than the experience. Yeah, yeah, and so and and you know with um, yeah, it's just so interesting. Um, there's so many courses that are easier to get to than Ask an Edge. <laughs> hundreds, really. <laughs> Tens of thousands. Hundreds, hundreds of them. And not only is it hard to get to, yeah. but when you get there, there's nothing there. <laughs> I mean, there's no pub to go to, really. No. We we went to a hotel bar. Uh, did you find a pub there? That was that's the only the only place we, we could find a drink. Yeah, the hotel bar, but they closed, so we were we were SOL. Yeah, they clo they closed just when you want a drink. They're closed. <laughs> the the, the so, sign turns uh, right when you walk up. <laughs> yeah, if you enjoy like a, a, a glass of whiskey after you're around, don't go to Aspen. <laughs> <laughs> I've had good luck with weather, so we we've never right, right. So what what um can you here's a here's a here's a question that I like to ask people that I really respect. Finish the sentence in one word if you can, or I'll give you as many as you need because you're a poet. Golf is golf is um is a uh, is uh, nature uh, what manicured nature uh, designed I think you know that something like that because I think people who don't play golf um, they ridicule it because you know you people are wearing purple pants and stuff like that and you're trying to get this little ball in the hole what's the point but they've never been on a golf course um, you know if you don't play golf you're not going to end up on a golf course but every golf course has uh, some natural delights and I mean in Florida you can see uh, an amazing number of birds and, and sometimes alligators in the fairway um, and in all and in many courses you'll see deer running across the fairway we saw a coyote down here running across the fairway um, but there, you're playing in a and, and you know links courses along the water I mean Every now and then, I mean, you're not playing golf all the time because you have other people who are hitting. This is something that could be expanded, I think. 
So when when your when your pals are hitting or the, the three guys who are not you, um, you can look at the water. You know, you can look at the, the pine tree, the wind in the pine trees. There's lots of time in that quiet period where you have to be silent when your uh, other guys are hitting. Um, there are these uh, contempt, contemplative uh, occasions or opportunities. Um, now that's not one word. But that's sort of <laughs> um, well. That's one of the I think a key feature of golf is not hitting the ball. It's being on the course. Mm. Well, you started off with two words, which was good. Nature designed. I, I did that. Did I moved me a little bit? I like that. Okay. What a lot of people ask me what's my favorite episode? And I kind of wanted to ask you, I don't want to ask you because when people ask me what my favorite episode, I literally, I just don't know how to answer that. And I was wondering if you feel the same way because I'm sure people ask you, what's your favorite poem? Oh yeah. No, it's, uh, uh, that's, that's something that they should answer. Uh, because, uh, I, I don't have any favorites. I mean, I, some people are surprised when I hear that. When they, when they hear that, but I don't have any favorites because once I write the poem, uh, I'm out of it. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, there's no way to get back inside there. So the door of the poem kind of closes, but another door opens, uh, which allows people to come in and read it. And I think if you do these episodes, once you're done with them, I, I don't see how you can have favorites. I mean, maybe you had more fun or there was fun point two or whatever that is. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, so I don't, I don't, I think it's a, and I, I, I'm interested in the poem that I, I have a poem that I'm working on right now. And, and so that's my favorite poem because I'm more interested in that than any other poem. But usually I don't, I don't, you know, you won't catch me sitting at home uh, reading my own poetry in the evening uh, and, 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 and chuckling, you know, uh, chuckling with a satisfied expression on my face. Well, perhaps um, a question just arose for me. Maybe you do have a favorite word. Oh, uh, you know, they say that evening is supposed to be a, a really nice word. Evening. But I... Um, you know, someone said uh, every author has the same favorite word, and the word is forthcoming. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that period when your book has not <laughs> come out yet, and that that period is also also known as the calm before the calm. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right. Well, hey, let's. Uh, before we end, I just want you to read my favorite poem of yours, which is "Flames." Now, what's that? Flames. Oh, flames. Okay. Again, this is quite an old poem, but um, but it's about our friend uh, Smokey the Bear. Um, flames. Smokey the Bear heads into the autumn woods with a red can of gasoline and a box of wooden matches. His ranger's hat is cocked at a disturbing angle. His brown fur gleams under the high sun as his paws, the size of catcher's mitts, crackle into the distance. He is sick of dispensing warnings to the careless, the half-wit camper, the dumbbell hiker. He is going to show them how a professional does it. <laughs> I just tell you, so when, I, go ahead, sorry. If that's your, if that's one of your favorites, you have a pretty twisted sense of humor yourself. <laughs> that's true. What what I love yeah. about that poem is that you're you you play with expectation. You know, I'm I'm reading one thing and I'm getting another, which is really one of my favorite parts of like being alive. Is that you know, for me, when I came to golf, I thought this night this game is not for me. This game is for like you said the the CEOs, yeah. the titans of industry. And then to find that it was for me. And not only that, it was for me like a capital M, like, like this has become my life. And so the fact that you and I are even talking, you know, you came to me before golf. And so it's just really interesting the way that poem starts off and you're thinking, Oh, 
it's a tiny little poem. It's a short one. You know, I also love short poems. But anyway, right. thank you. Good. Uh, I'm happy to do that for you. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Maybe we'll play golf together sometime. That would be great. I like that. I like that. Um, thank you for your time, Billy. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to sign off the podcast and then you and I can talk for a minute. Cause you know, we got a debrief like in the okay. green room, you know? Okay. So I'm working, yeah, actually, you, ahead, can, you can help a, me, Billy. It's been a pleasure to, how should pleasure we sign to off? How should we sign off the podcast? I don't, I still haven't kind of perfected this. Oh, I don't know. Long and straight. Long, <laughs> long and straight. Have a good day, everybody. Thank long, you. Keep it long and straight. Okay. Thanks, Billy.